Hello, and welcome to Right Care Baptist. Today, Henry and I will be talking with Dr. John Craig about ECMO and its use in COVID-19 patients as well as in the general patient population. Dr. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your clinical practice? Sure. Yeah, first of all, it's really uh, great to join you guys. I appreciate the time to talk about ECMO. Um, my, my background is that I grew up here in Memphis. Uh, I practice uh, both in cardio, cardiothoracic surgery and vascular surgery. And uh, a big part of my practice has been uh, transplant and ventricular assist device. So related to that is uh, advanced, uh, advanced therapies for basically mechanical support, whether it's uh, heart or lung failure. And ECMO is a big part of that. Um, so it's a pretty, a pretty broad practice, but my biggest interest would be transplant, mechanical support, and, and ECMO treatment. So John, uh, hey, it, it's Henry, and listen, so, so glad you could spend some time with us today. Define ECMO. What exactly is ECMO? What does the acronym stand for? So the, uh, you'll see why we call it ECMO, because it's extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or some people call it extracorporeal life support. Uh, much, much bigger words. So ECMO is um, essentially an extension of the heart-lung machine. So in surgery, when we do cardiac surgeries, we stop the heart intentionally, yet that patient goes on to fully recover. Then normally when the heart and the lungs stop for that period of time, uh, that is not survivable. So in a controlled situation, you can take over the function of the heart and the lungs while uh, some repair is being done. So the extracorporeal part refers to outside the body. Uh, and then a membrane, a membrane oxygenator is really an artificial lung. So it's a heart and it's a lung. And it's essentially the heart-lung machine that we use for open-heart surgery being now applied to situations where we may deploy it in, in an operating room. We may deploy it in a remote hospital. We can deploy it in the um, intensive care unit. So in a situation where a patient's heart or lung, uh, or lungs will be failing, you can institute this therapy um, to let them recover, or you go in and physically recover something or take them to the operating room or whatever it is they need. It can be a variety of situations, really. You touched on it briefly, John, but what are just some of the general indications for use of, of so, Right, they're extremely broad. So uh, really, um, anything that causes acute and reversible and severe uh, failure of the heart or the lungs. So it doesn't work very well for chronic conditions. So you may have a patient with COPD with a severe exacerbation. It doesn't work real well for that. Uh, a, a different situation would be somebody who's otherwise pretty in pretty good shape or they don't really have significant medical problems um, or they have well-managed you know, uh, chronic medical problems, but they end up with severe, um, you know, ARDS from uh, influenza pneumonia. This is a very common one for, for pulmonary support ECMO. And in that case, um, you know, that's, it's a short term, it's a very acute problem. Uh, ideally, it's reversible. A lot of times the, the flu problem can be, can, can reverse. Now, the, the issue is, if you get a very severe case, we end up in ARDS, the, um, the rest of the body may be in, in good condition, but the ventilator-associated lung injury that is required by the lung failure, may, that may be really ultimately the cause of death. So it could be recoverable if you didn't have to use high ventilator settings. So it, 
something in that case of flu pneumonia, it's reversible, it's acute, and it has to be of sufficient severity because, you know, as tempting as it is sometimes, you know, you say, well, we'll just put them on ECMO and we'll just turn a couple of knobs and it's like magic and everything is fine. Um, you know, there's large bore access required. There's anticoagulation. There's a lot that goes with that. So it has to be of sufficient severity in order to justify deploying, you know, complex resources. Can you talk about that a little bit more? So, you know, when you're evaluating a patient to determine if they need to be on ECMO, what sort of criteria are you using to, to make that determination? So it generally involves looking at the disease process initially to make sure that it really meets those criteria that's acute, uh, that it is something that we think the underlying cause is reversible. Sometimes there's a few things going on and you're not totally sure. And I think in that case, a multidisciplinary approach is really helpful. Uh, especially in the case of you know some of these obscure medical or pulmonary uh, problems that it's difficult to know really how how reversible that is. Um, so I think your your initial disease process has has a big part to do with that. Um, you really need to have tried everything in all of conventional treatments to make sure that uh, you know you don't just jump straight to fairly complex and risky risky therapy. Um, so in the case of, say, COVID pneumonia, uh, or really a lot of pneumonias or, or ARDS in general, there's really a lot of steps that you want to try first. You generally want to make sure that they're, they're going to be on the ventilator first, because really to really show that um, they're that sick. If they haven't been put on mechanical ventilation, we, we almost never talk about, uh, about ECMO. There are some rare cases, but really not so much for, for COVID-19. Um, Right now, you know, obviously, there's a lot of controversy about remdesivir and convalescent serum. Um, but uh, in situations where you feel like that is helpful, or at times before when it was a little bit more empiric, I think we were doing that a lot of times before pulling the trigger. Um, we have found that tr uh, proning has been quite beneficial in, in this group. So um, there have been patients even on ECMO um, that we've had some significant limitations to being able to support them. We've actually done prone positioning on ECMO, um, but uh, but prone positioning, I think, is another thing that's really been helpful. And uh, obviously, you want to make sure that your ventilator management, your ventilator strategies are not just at maximum therapies, but they're also optimal, uh, and that really everything you can be you can do is 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 failing. And if that's the case, um, then you really want to do this in a time frame that is that is not so far into their disease process that it is irreversible. So you can have something that is reversible that goes on for a number of days and they're likely at that point to be in a, a state of, um, five, you know, that they're, they're getting into a fibrotic state of their ARDS, that will not be reversible. Um, so generally uh, you want about less than seven days of high ventilator settings and the extracorporeal life support organization says really seven days on the ventilator for COVID-19, regardless of, of ECMO settings, would really be, um, you really want to institute it before then. But most of these are relative contraindications. So, um, and we can talk about that in a minute as well. But but generally to consider somebody, those are the things, a disease process that's acute reversible, you've really tried everything else. And, um, and then you want to make sure they don't have uh, a number of contraindications. So relative contraindications would be maybe their body mass index. And again, with COVID-19, we know that their survival really isn't 
it, it's a a novel it's a novel uh, pathology, and we don't fully understand it. Uh, I think we're making some progress in terms of the mortality rate, even though we've seen the, the overall your know, incidence um, increase. But but with that, we're starting to learn too that, that it doesn't always respond well to uh, to um, to ECMO. So in the beginning, for the, for the first month or two of the pandemic, all our data, not just ours, but all uh, you know, large programs were entering their data into the the ELSO database, and we could get this information back in real time about survival. In the beginning, it was about thirty percent survival to discharge, and normally for other similar, you know, viral uh, pneumonias, you would see the survival of 70% or more. And um, so the time frame, uh, the recovery time frame is unlike anything we've seen. Um, the, uh, so we're, we're a little bit more selective, I think, in, in doing this. And I think the programs that have really high survival, I think also are a little bit more, not only do they do, I think, very you know, top-notch patient management, but um, they're also, I think, carefully selecting their patients as well. You mentioned ELSO, and my understanding is, is Baptist Memphis is part of that organization, correct? And and yes. But that is a, a designation, I guess, that uh, not every ECMO center has that. So can you just talk a little bit about what that means for us and, and how long your program has been going on? Yeah, so uh, it's an extracorporeal life support organization. It's a uh, an international society essentially uh, around ECMO therapy. It involves both adult and um, adult and congenital or, or pediatric ECMO. And uh, there's an annual meeting. Uh, there is, I think that's really the organization most people look to uh, for um, information. I think hopefully at some point there will be a, possibly a journal, uh, but it's right now it's something that um, uh, you submit your, your data to. There's uh, an entire sort of data management uh, side of ELSO. So in cases like a pandemic, when you really need rapid information about, you know, survival rates and management strategies, you can quickly put together some of the international experts to get uh, information out to other programs. You know, as this pandemic kind of moved from uh, east to west, you know, across the world, you know, we had an advantage here in getting a lot of the uh, the eastern uh, um, eastern hemisphere experience, and I think it kind of armed us with a little bit more information. But with that, they have different uh, designations of, of hospitals in terms of volume and, and certain certain requirements. And I think all reputable or, or large programs would uh, would try to be a part of this. How long oh. has that just been offering ECMO, John? So our first, uh, you know, I'd say we've done, you know, a case here and there over the years, you know, long before I was here. I think our first, um, when we got together and made a, an official program, it was the end of 2013. And I think our first year, we probably supported about 10, 10 or 10 people. And I think right now we're doing uh, close to 50 a year for the past two or three years. So how does care for the COVID patient with, with a COVID ARDS picture differ from the cases you've seen prior to this pandemic, prior to this particular viral type pneumonia? So typically ECMO would follow a pretty predictable pattern. You know, with with uh, pulmonary support, you would you'd put them on ECMO, you would start uh, really aggressive, just general overall management. You want to start nutrition right away, 
start to remove extra volume right away to diurese them and, and improve their lung function that way. Physical therapy, we would a lot of times try to wake them up, even try if we could to extubate them. Uh, we'd have patients, we'd take them outside on ECMO, get them you know, a little vitamin D, and that's also good you know, psychologically to, to see the outside. Um, some of them would work on their computer. They may talk to their friends on the uh, on the on their phone. It's kind of a nice thing to keep them keep them uh, using their skeletal muscles and using their 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 brain as well. Um, what we've seen a lot of times with the COVID patients is they uh, they're very difficult to sedate. So those patients, you think that well, we can just put this person on ECMO and you know we'll extubate them soon, but we just have reasons we don't really understand, uh, there seems to be a lot of um, anxiety and they're very difficult to sort of uh, to manage that way. So getting them to extubate has been very difficult. The amount of time they've been on ECMO has been considerable. Uh, we had a patient that we put on ECMO to deliver uh, her her baby. I think she was at 34, 35 weeks. We, del- we put her on ECMO delivered her by C-section, basically all in one procedure. And um, I thought she would probably be extubated a day or two later. And she was extremely hard to sort of manage from a sedation standpoint. It ended up taking 10 weeks. I couldn't believe somebody could survive 10 weeks of ECMO, but she's at home. Uh, She's off oxygen. Uh, She's with her baby. Um, But I, I think she's probably one of the longest ECMO runs in the United States, I think with COVID. And we Recently, have we have another a gentleman in the hospital who went nine weeks on ECMO, and he's uh, he's maybe off the ventilator now. Um, I didn't think, and he was up all close to sixty. So I didn't. So seeing people last this long has been unusual. Typically, the traditional pattern is within about two weeks, most people will be off ECMO. At four weeks, you traditionally consider futility um and and withdrawing because usually you're thinking they're at a fibrotic or irreversible phase of their 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 problem so you can that puts this eight ten week thing uh eight nine week ten weeks into perspective that that is phenomenally long and so you you touched on this a little bit earlier when you're talking about pulmonary support for these patients but you just talk to us a little bit about how you put a patient on ecmo and what the different methods of ecmo there there are venous versus uh, you know arterial and so on and what and what the typical i guess covid patient or ards patient would get sure yeah that's come a long way so back in the 70s when they really had the first big clinical trial they put everybody on veno arterial ecmo so you would drain blood from a venous source return it to an arterial source you would therefore bypass the heart lung circuit and it was like being on the heart lung machine but it's a shotgun approach and it takes care of the heart, the lungs, and pretty much everything. Well, it was very morbid. There was a lot of bleeding with that. The average was about 10, 10 units of blood products trans, transfused per day. Uh, so the bleeding was significant. Uh, the vascular access at that time was fairly large bore. Um, they didn't have these portable machines that, that we have now. They were using heart lung machines and it was there weren't a lot of survivors. In fact, in the beginning, uh, it, it kind of amazes me that with that management strategy then that it, it didn't actually cre- create more mortality, but somehow it come out about the equivalent as uh, regular ARDS management. 
Well, over time, you know, this just big heart lung machine, which is kind of like the size of a small car, is now about as compact as, you know, a um, little bit bigger than like a basketball. Um, it's quite heavy, however, uh, but it, you can just set it right there on the patient's bed, almost like the size of the, the blood cooler. Um, so the machine has gotten much more smaller. It's much more portable. It's made for much longer term support. Um, the the cannulations are are done percutaneously now. So a lot of times there's no incision. Um, it, with venovenous ECMO, where you take it from a vein and oxygenate it and put it back into a vein, it would be very similar to dialysis. So it's a very large bore instead of a, a 12 French dialysis catheter. It's a 30 32 French dialysis catheter, um, but they put both the drainage and the return into a single large cannula. So you can do this in the intensive care unit. So a lot of times we'll do this, uh, we'll put the cannula in and we'll take it at the end of ECMO and the patient never sees the operating room. Even for VA ECMO, we've done uh, for heart failure, when we're preparing somebody for a transplant, they may have really advanced uh, uh, you know, mechanical failure they're failing inotropes and there are multiple drugs, but we need a few days to, to get a donor. And uh, so for a lot of them, we'll do awake uh, veno-arterial ECMO and we'll femorally cannulate percutaneously. And then we'll decannulate them at the again at the bedside and we can do this completely without going to the operating room. This was kind of unthinkable a few years ago, but you know, there's ways to pre-close the artery where you make a small hole, put a couple of stitches in it, uh, that then you dilate the hole up. So when you take that cannula out, you have a knot pusher that then cinches that hole closed. And that allows you to get large bore access, you know, 21 French access in an artery, and then take that out at the bedside, cinch these down and, and never go to the OR. Um, so it's a lot of neat technology has come along. So there's the, the VV and the VA ECMO. Again, the VV ECMO is, is really just for, uh, for lung support. For COVID-19, we try to keep it very simple um, because if you can not get in, you know, you don't access a, a large bore, you know, put a large bore cannula in an artery, you may get some limb perfusion problems from that. So that brings up other issues. You can get thrombosis, you can get distal embolization, a variety of, of significant complications that, that could occur. And with VV ECMO, where you go in through a vein, for example, you stay out of the arterial circulation at lower risk. We try to start that way. Part of you know our, our theory and some other programs have got this too, that if um, you know maybe what's driving a lot of the agitation in these people is going to be hypoxemia. So the carotid baroreceptors um, are still seeing a PaO2 of 50 or 60, and that it might still be stimulating them, and they may be sensing um, hypoxemia, that, or they may sense that there's, uh, or they may have an air hunger from this. So in some, we've had to do this in a, a few of the COVID patients is then they have the neck cannula in, we supplement that with another cannula in the uh, axillary artery, we do that percutaneously as well, and it would be 14 to 17 French. So now it's technically VA ECMO, but the idea is that to then put some arterial blood back into the aortic arch and let those baroreceptors see a PaO2 of 100 or 120. And uh, interestingly, you know, we've seen some of those patients where they, they kind of relax a bit. And I think some of that agitation was from maybe air hunger. 
Uh, so those are just a few steps we've had to take in the COVID patients that's been really, uh, we haven't had to do that before. John, you, you, you touched on this a little bit, but what are the complications from ECMO that, that, that you see, frequently see? Yeah, so thinking about it chronologically, the first step you've got to get through is going to be the cannulation. Um, these it's a 32 French cannula. When we put it in for VV ECMO, it's big, it's larger than the endotracheal tube, and you really wouldn't think about putting an endotracheal tube into somebody's jugular vein, but that's kind of what's happening. So um, the first the first complication is going to be something involving the cannulation. Fortunately, we've never had that during the, the cannulation procedure. It involves very careful use of stiff wires, and we use fluoroscopy in the ICU. These these ICU beds are fluoro compatible, and you just have to stick to your your you know, basics of you know careful large bore access. Uh, when you get past that step, the next step is a lot of times there's some hemodynamic changes from their blood being exposed to this foreign circuitry and the membrane oxygenator. So when that happens, they get a big cytokine release and they may get hypotensive, sometimes severely. And then you're not sure is a cytokine release or is this a hemorrhage. But usually if you just you know uh, reverse that with some uh, neosinephrine or something, usually you can get through that in a few minutes. As the ECMO run goes, we will anticoagulate them. So there's a small there's a small risk of intracranial hemorrhage, um, probably in the range of just a couple of percent. Uh, it can be severe and it can be fatal, uh, but that's fortunately pretty unusual. And I think nowadays people are using less anticoagulation for that reason. You know, it had to be used in the beginning because we didn't want to see a lot of uh, pump thrombosis or, or limb ischemic complications, but if you keep the flow rates up and the newer oxygenators really are pretty resistant to, to um, they're quite resistant to uh, thrombosis, you know, we can use a lot less anticoagulation. So I think any, any bleeding complication, whether it's uh, internal, whether it's cannula site bleeding, whether it's intracranial hemorrhage, uh, fortunately that should be under 10% for that whole, that whole group. Um, there's certainly infectious complications as well. Uh, we don't see a lot in the way of bloodstream infections, but I think um, if people develop a fungemia, that's typically a death sentence. Um, although, uh, we, the gentleman that survived the nine weeks of ECMO, he actually had a period of fungemia. Um, and, uh, and it was not just on one test, one blood, uh, one blood culture, it was on a few. So I think it was real and, uh, getting him decannulated off ECMO, I think helped to finally clear that. But, um, I think it just general other things would be. They can develop other other just general medical complications during uh, critical illness, um, but I think infections are going to be probably the biggest the biggest thing to worry about. Probably followed by hemorrhagic complications. Second, um, you touched on contraindications earlier, but do y'all have an age cutoff that you look for as well, or because I know you know a lot of the the patients that are coming in with COVID nineteen or especially the ones that end up in the ICU are, are older patient populations. So what do you think about in terms of the age? Yeah, so I think, yes, there is. There's some guidelines on that. And I think the general idea I'd like to really uh, make clear is that I always say that all contraindications are relative when it comes to ECMO. Now, that's not totally true. I mean, as somebody that you absolutely could not accept blood products, for example, I would uh, say that would be a, an absolute contraindication. Um, uh, the reason I would say all contraindications are, are relative is it at least gets people thinking about it and they can give us a call. The nice thing is we have a multidisciplinary team. So whenever they call for an ECMO evaluation, 
it's not just myself or one other ECMO doctors making a unilateral decision. We, it's a policy that we'll, we'll discuss that among ECMO team leadership. So a lot of these borderline cases uh, or they have some of these relative contraindications, you may have two or three of them, but we feel that they're still a good enough candidate and we can go ahead and proceed. Uh, so I think, you know, absolute contraindications would be somebody who has a non-survivable, uh, you know, their underlying, their whatever condition they're in is, is not as non-survivable. That's probably about the only case where I would say that's a true, uh, absolute contraindication. Now, um, relative contraindication would be typically an age less than 60 for COVID-19. Now, with other things, really, that people haven't really stuck their neck out and given an actual age cutoff, but uh, usually a BMI of about 35 to 40, depending on the center, an age uh, cutoff of about 60. Uh, you really would avoid patients with significant chronic you know, uh, um, heart, uh, liver, or lung disease. I think those are pretty significant problems that will, be, uh, will really compromise your ability to survive a, a reverse, an otherwise reversible, uh, a reversible problem. Um, I think we're a little more selective. I think most programs are avoiding going to cannulate at remote centers and then transporting COVID patients back. Uh, again, I think every one of these relative contraindications, we have successfully managed COVID patients who have uh, had some of these relative contraindications. But again, I think it, it requires, I think, quite a bit of judgment on the, the you know, the by the ECMO leadership team. But those would be the main things. Now, I think, again, we would go back to age, uh, I'm sorry, time on support. If they've been on any form of uh, ventilator for seven days or more, that would be a case I would really avoid, um, particularly if they have high high settings. Uh, cirrhosis, I think, is one that does very poorly. Uh, they tend to get this high output state, and many times it's very difficult to maintain adequate blood pressure. Um, so those, I think, renal failure to me is not a huge huge issue. We can um, we can splice uh, ECMO or, or uh, CRT connections into the ECMO circuit. And many times uh, the kidneys are one of the first organ uh, systems to really fail with critical illness. So many times that's reversible and that can be managed, I think, reasonably while somebody is on ECMO. And you said age of less than 60. Did you mean age greater than 60? Yeah, age greater than 60 would be the cutoff. We consider the ones less than age 60. Now, we've done some that were greater than that. Again, if the rest of their, their profile is really good, then somebody who's a quite functional 65-year-old, you know, I would say we should support them. Yeah. Yeah. And did you mention malignancy? I didn't hear that. So malignancy, right, that I think has a lot to do with the life expectancy of that malignancy. This is a really controversial subject. Um, what if somebody has a, a, treat, a malignancy that is uh, in the long term wouldn't be survival, survivable, but they may live another year or two? Um, I think if some of these have had like bone marrow transplants, for example, uh, we have seen really poor results in that group. Um, but if you have a solid organ uh, malignancy and they have you know reasonable survival, you know at least a year, uh, again that's going to be a team decision. Um, but I think that would be a reasonable thing to do if they have reasonable survival. Because again, if you think that they should survive and recover from ECMO and they could go back to reasonable quality of life and time with their friends and family, um, then I would I would offer that. But advanced malignancy with very short-term survival, 
uh, would almost be in the same category of our earlier absolute contraindication that if it's futile care, you would you would uh, be better off not to do it. I should sure. one other thing too, in the setting of a pandemic, you may have people that are otherwise very supportable that you would feel comfortable supporting, but you have to be mindful of the resource utilization during a pandemic. So you may have somebody that you could, and this is a very controversial subject, but this, this really came out earlier this year that you could use resources that could be could salvage, you know, five other people that may, you may use in, in ECMO. So I think a lot of people say in a, in a really, really tight situation where you're well beyond your capacity, that maybe you shouldn't be doing ECMO at all. So that's the other part of this is really knowing your your resources for the for the area, and that would be pandemic pandemic specific. How many ECMO patients can you have at the same time, John? Or what's the What's the highest number of ECMO cases you've had running at, at any one time? So that um, <clears throat> we have uh, we have dedicated ECMO machines, and then we have the ability of of, of um, building other circuits that we have used many times more for short term support, and we have other type machines that uh, that are great for say right ventricular support. That in a pandemic again, when you're really stressed. You could probably do up to, you know, twelve to fifteen. Um, uh, but again, that's that would be a really, really difficult situation. We've done eight uh, during this pandemic. I think the most we've done has been eight simultaneously. And keep in mind, it's a, more than just the machines. It's a good, good point. You know, that's not just the uh, beds and machines, but it's also, um, uh, you know, having the staff. You know. It's very, you have to have a bedside nurse. You've got to have ECMO specialists. These are really highly trained nurses. Uh, not just the, not just the ones at the bedside have to be highly trained, but the ones that do the, uh, the ECMO management and then ECMO coordinators. And then, um, you know, you could actually run out of, uh, you know, human, human, uh, human resources to do this. So I think if you start getting around eight to 10, our, it stresses our system pretty significantly, but I think getting all hands on deck, a you know, really catastrophic, catastrophic situation, you, you may be able to go up to as many as, uh, you know, 12 to 15 range. Well, I know you're running low on time and I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. Do you have any closing comments you wanna to give to the medical staff out there? Sure, yeah, I'd say, first of all, the person that sees that person that may end up needing ECMO and that thinks about it and makes a call um, is as responsible, even if they saw that patient for five minutes and they might have transferred that patient and we might have taken care of them for two months on ECMO. The person that originally saw it and thought of it is just as responsible for a good outcome as all the people that might have managed them, them ultimately. So the most important thing is that we think about it. We know the resources are there, that it is a multidisciplinary evaluation. It's going to be a thorough evaluation. Every every person that we get a call about will be uh, thoroughly, thoroughly evaluated. And, uh, and and we would love to hear from anybody that has a, a case that they'd like to run by us. There's nothing that's too big or too small. It's never too late or too early. Uh, this is a 24-7 program and, and very happy to support anybody that needs that. It is a community resource that we don't see it strictly as just a Baptist uh, Baptist thing. This is a, a community resource for the for the region 
and I'm just really glad that uh, that I'm in a system uh, that can that can offer that. And I really um, am very uh, thankful. I think for the the Baptist you know, Corporation just for being able to support such a uh, this is a huge endeavor to have an ECMO program, and um, I'm thankful that we have that there. So we're ready to use that, and happy to hear from anybody that would like to run a case by us. Well, thank you, Henry. Do you have any closing comments? No, just a, just a big thank you to John Craig. John, uh, you can tell uh, all the listeners that John works tirelessly and is very committed to this program. And without John's great support and and hard work, the program would not be as successful as it is. So a great deal of thanks to you, John, for taking some time out to visit with our audience today and, and exactly. keep doing the great work that you're doing. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. And, and thank you, everyone, for listening to Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you go to the show notes, you can find the link to the CME survey. See you next time.